today on Against the Grain. This planet's sixth mass extinction is underway. What can Thoreau add to our understanding of it? Why Chi Dimmock has written about Thoreau in the context of real and threatened extinction of wildlife and of human populations. I'm CS, the Harvard-based researcher and Yale professor joins me, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. In works like Walden and Civil Disobedience, Henry David Thoreau had plenty to say. Simplicity, independence, individualism, respect for nature, these are just some of the themes Thoreau expounded on during his 44 years on Earth and two-plus years at Walden Pond. We may not think of this 19th century thinker as having anything to say about an issue of supreme importance today, species extinction and loss of biodiversity, but why Chi Demick thinks otherwise. From a careful reading of Thoreau, she understands him to have anticipated irreversible changes to the natural world, a point of no return. Native Americans and their fate were another abiding interest of Thoreau's. Dimmick brings this out in an essay that underscores the resurgence of Native American cultural energy and ecological militancy in the 21st century. Y. Chi Dimmick is a researcher at the Harvard University Center for the Environment and professor of English and American Studies at Yale. Much of her research focuses on American literature, climate change, and public health. And her essay, Vanishing Sounds, Thoreau and the Sixth Extinction, appears in the volume Timescales, Thinking Across Ecological Temporalities. When Y. Chi and I connected recently, I asked what motivated the writing of that essay. So I've always loved Thoreau, and I would go back and read him, you know, every um, year or so, just, you know, maybe not the whole book, but just passages that I love, you know, I would just read them again. But I think that it's really in the context of various uh, species going extinct. I mean, you know, today, you know, we learn that the polar bear is actually endangered because one third has been killed. And that's just the most obvious example. But we hear about insects dying off in Europe. Certainly, I mean, it's just such a pervasive and kind of entrenched phenomenon at this point that it, it just just the context of that and then thinking back to how things were in the 19th century uh, that you know even though this process was beginning you know industrialization was beginning um, but it was a really very different landscape so you know thinking about the connection between these two at a moment when things were still fine but beginning to go downhill and the point that we occupy right now, uh, which is a really dangerous moment for most living things on the planet, and the importance of going back to Thoreau and thinking through about the trajectory of how we got from there to here, um, and also the possibility of doing things otherwise, of trying to make this, yes, a low point but also the beginning of something new. Can you talk a little bit more about what's been called the sixth extinction? Do you have a sense of how many species are disappearing each year? Uh, predictions about the extent of extinction to be expected over the, the next decades or century, and, and how often such massive die-offs occur in this planet, have occurred in this planet's history? Yes. So, I mean, I think that Elizabeth Colbert has has talked about that at great length and about just the horrifying numbers of species that have vastly diminished. In 2014, she reported that it is estimated that one-third of all reef-building corals, a third of all freshwater mollusks, a third of sharks and rays, a quarter of all mammals, a fifth of all reptiles, 
and the sixth of all births are headed towards oblivion. And Yeo Wilson has already issued a similar warning earlier. And the latest number that we have, uh, which is from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was issued on May 6, 2019, warned that a million species will be extinct within the next decades. So these are numbers that are about as hard-hitting as can be. I mean, you know, this is not a kind of a sideshow. I mean, it, this is the main drama that is happening right now. You begin this essay not with Thoreau, but with a recent book on the loss of biodiversity as a sonic phenomenon. The book is The Great Animal Orchestra by Bernie Krauss. He is famous as a musician, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, he. most people know him as a kind of cult figure, you know, as replacing Pete Seeger uh, with the Weavers and, and basically also, um, you know, being responsible for the music in iconic films like Apocalypse Now. Uh, so, I mean, I think that I think that he has unusual credentials as a colleges, uh, in the sense that people don't usually associate musicians with, I mean, even though musicians would certainly play, you know, to raise money for environmental causes, they, they don't necessarily go out and try to create sound data that would testify to the health of ecosystems, and that's the direction that he's taken. Krauss's focus on bioacoustics and more specifically the sound ecology of endangered habitats, what has that revealed about spadefoot toads and what happens to the sounds they make and what they're able to do with those sounds when human-generated sounds intrude? Well, in in the case of the spadefoot toads, I mean, I think that is is more of a local phenomenon. Uh, he was watching them. Um, these uh, toad species has a marvelous uh, sound engineering. Um, they would synchronize the call so that it would be a kind of seamless sonic fabric, and it would be impossible to pick out any single toad uh, because it works together as this synchronized whole. And so it would be very hard for a predator to come and swoop in and, and get one of them. Uh, but what happened was that when a military jet was flying by, um, that sound disturbance disrupted that synchronized uh, croaking. And, and it became possible for the predators to come in and pick off a few of the toes. Um, I think that his point is that, you know, this is, um, even though this is a local phenomenon, it nonetheless demonstrates the way in which ecosystems, including sound ecosystems, are really delicately engineered. I mean, I think that, you know, it's both a tribute to the marvelous intricacy of the engineering, uh, but also to the fragility of that engineering, that it can be easily upset and the consequences of disturbing that that balance is immediate. It produces instant results. Um, So from that local observation, I think that the larger point that he wants to make is that in fact the military jet is really the least of the problems facing sound ecosystems right now. Um, It's the fact that species are going extinct. That accounts for, you know, not just the breaking of the sonic fabric, but the breaking of the entire species, uh, that there's just no one there to make any sound at all. Um, And so it is this deadly silence that is in fact true, not just of of toes, but of amphibians in general. Um, And so this is a pretty well-documented phenomenon that they are among the most endangered species uh, on the planet. But what is terrifying is that amphibians are in many ways like the canary in the coal mine in the sense that um, because they're at home in two environments, both in land and sea uh, or in an aquatic environment, um, they they really speak to the degradation of all conditions of life on the planet. You know, it's not just one habitat that is being endangered because they have habitats 
everywhere. They are the most common and also the oldest, among the oldest species on this planet. Thoreau was interested in frogs, in bullfrogs on Walden Pond, on and in Walden Pond. And he writes in Walden about the sounds they make. And he says that their croaking, he emphasizes, or you find it significant, that he says their croaking was repeated. Uh, what do you find significant about that? There, there are two things. One, I mean, I think that they are certainly still robustly uh, croaking, and, you know, they're not about to vanish at any point. But Thoreau's description actually also talks about them as, as uneasy. There's a sense of unease about the croaking of the frogs in the sense that things are not what they used to be before. The water is not, it's not as wine-like as it used to be. Um, there's a sense that this is really the ending of an era as opposed to the beginning or a, a kind of a sustainable state, uh, not a sustainable ongoing state but already the beginning of a decline, um, that they are croaking as hard as they can just to keep up the sound so that there's much more of an effort, much more of a struggle just to keep things going, uh, which was not the case when even within his own lifetime. Um, so I think that this is really, you know, when we think about the mid-19th century and the changes that were just beginning to happen, um, for me, this is, I mean, this is, I should confess that this is definitely not a moment that would jump out at most readers. You know, it's a pretty forgettable moment unless we want to think about the fate of frogs, you know, um, and, and using that as kind of an entry point. Um, but once we start thinking about the robust endurance or lack of it uh, for frogs, then this becomes a really telling moment that if it's going to be a struggle for animals just to keep up what they're used to doing, have been doing for a long time, uh, the changes that are coming about are momentous and it's probably a kind of a system-wide transformation as opposed to just you know one particular habitat being affected uh, is much more likely that it's a large-scale change that is in the making. My guest is Wai Chi Dimmock. She is the William Lampson Professor of English and American Studies at Yale University and a researcher at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. We are talking about an essay she wrote called Vanishing Sounds, Thoreau and the Sixth Extinction, which appeared in the volume Timescales, Thinking Across Ecological Temporalities. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You point also in the essay to Thoreau's interest in fables, ancient uh, fables and folk tales about animals from places like Greece and India. In one of Thoreau's books, he writes about skating after a fox on the ice. What does he say? This is actually in his uh, notebooks, uh, in his personal notebooks. Um, he talked about this fascinating episode uh, when he saw that there was a fox taking note of him, uh, recognizing his presence, um, and going into this curious synchronized dance so that uh, when Thoreau would go one step or a few steps towards him, the fox would, would retreat. Um, and then he would stop and look at Thoreau and, and do nothing, you know, and just sit there and look at Thoreau. Um, and then Thoreau would advance, and then he would he would retreat. But he did not try to um, increase the distance between them, which Thoreau was really struck by. And there's something about this dance between the two of them, uh, which suggests that animals are probably as fascinated by humans as as we are by them, and that there's the possibility for some kind of relation. But at the same time, it's also clear that there's really a gulf between them. Um, and so what Thoreau ended up saying is that he really is living according to a logic of his own, and that that logic uh, gives him a freedom, and it is not the logic of the tongue. It is not the logic of civilized human life. And we need to be aware of that and try not to project what we take for granted 
onto the non-human world because in fact the non-human world does not recognize our centrality. The non-human world does not recognize our value. The non-human world is just there, you know, noticing that we are a presence that they have to reckon with. But, you know, they don't have any more insight into us than we do into them. Uh, and it's really important to recognize, you know, this non-coincidence of interest between humans and non-humans. He writes in that volume that the fox barked like a young wolf. What do you make of that? That is the most singular sentence in that passage. Unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of us know exactly how a fox sounds and how a wolf sounds, but still, the, the two of them are totally distinct, I mean, even for city dwellers. Foxes have a different status from wolves. Actually, in, in, in Wisconsin and in, in some other Midwestern states, the quota has just been for the number of wolves that can be killed uh, each year. That quota has just been raised. Um, so, I mean, wolves are really considered uh, to be uh, generally not welcome. I mean, they are, they are accepted as, as maybe a kind of necessary evil for most farmers and ranchers. But even by the general population, um, there's not a whole lot of love for the wolf, whereas fox is is a different kind of animal. Um, it's cute. Um, this one certainly seems to be. Um, but I think that there's a kind of a sonic distortion that Thoreau seems to be highlighting um, that to his ears is almost as if the fox was sounding like a wolf, so much so that one could be mistaken for the other. And I think that that comes at the heels of emphasizing the gulf between humans and the fox, between Thoreau himself and the fox. So between himself and the fox, there is this distance that's never going to change, right? He can try to get closer to the fox, the fox is going to retreat. Um, There will always be a, a distance that cannot be overcome. Whereas between the fox and the wolf, you know, there ought to be a similar distance, ought to be a sonic difference, distance between the two of them. Um, that distance actually is elastic. Um, and at some moments, a fox can sound very much like a wolf, suggesting that maybe the fate of the wolf is possibly also the fate of the fox. And in fact, in the 19th century in Massachusetts, uh, the wolf had been um, hunted to, I mean, they were allowed to go extinct in some parts of Massachusetts. So, I mean, Thoreau knew that he is comparing the fox to an animal that really had been eliminated by humans to a large extent. Um, And to hold that up as a fate, which even though not imminent for the fox, is nonetheless a foreseeable future. That is, animals, the fox and the wolf, would have more in common than a human and a fox would ever have in common. Another animal, and it sounds that figures prominently in Thoreau's, Henry David Thoreau's writing, and and I'm thinking here of Walden, is the loon. And Thoreau in Walden famously pursues a loon uh, on the pond. What sort of sounds come from the loon. So, okay, so this isn't quite the end of Walden, right? It's, it's, it's in, a, in a chapter called uh, Brute Neighbors, and it ends with the loon, and it's probably the most unforgettable moment in Walden. So, you know, I mean, I com- completely, I think most people assume that that is, in fact, how Walden ends. Uh, and it's kind of a replay of the same dynamics between Thoreau and the fox. You know, once again, he's trying to diminish the distance between him and the loon, and the loon is trying to do the same thing that the fox does, which is always to maintain the same distance. Um, he would disappear underwater, and then he would come back up, and the distance remains. Uh, he would create this eerie sound as if in triumph, and then when Thoreau was actually getting closer to him, he created a, a sound that was actually also wolf-like. Yeah, he writes that the loon he pursues howls like a like a wolf. Exactly. 
It was an eerie uh, sound, as if Thoreau says, as if he were calling on the god of loons to come to his rescue. And sure enough, a breeze came along and ruffled the surface of the water, and it became very hard for Thoreau to detect where the loon is. So in fact, his prayer was answered. But but I think that um, for me, what is really striking is the reappearance of the wolf in that particular context. I mean, you know, we don't actually see the wolf. We never see the wolf ever on Walden Pond. But through this kind of sonic um, echo, the ghostly presence of the wolf seems to be everywhere. You know, the ghostly presence of the wolf is there with the fox. The ghostly presence of the wolf is there with the loon. And it is a ghostly presence because, in fact, the wolf has been rendered ghostly uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, without being heavy-handed about it, Thoreau is just using that very delicate but, but also quite tenacious invocation and re-invocation uh, of that ghostly presence to suggest a web of relations that really connect all non-human life and the way in which you know, that is so often at the mercy of human intervention and human intrusion. Was the loon destined for extinction in Massachusetts? The loon was extinct, was in danger. It wasn't destined for extinction, but it was in danger at some point. And then it kind of got out of that. But uh, I don't think that it was actually in danger at the moment when Thoreau was writing. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Wai Chi Dimmock is my guest. She teaches English and American Studies at Yale University. She's a researcher at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. Her books include Weak Planet, Literature and Assisted Survival, and Through Other Continents, American Literature Across Deep Time. We are talking about an essay she contributed to the volume Timescales, Thinking Across Ecological Temporalities. Wai Chi's essay is entitled Vanishing Sounds, Thoreau and the Sixth Extinction. Stanley Cavell, uh, you bring up Stanley Cavell in this piece. What did he suggest was the literary genre closest to Thoreau's temperament, to his sentiments? Well, I mean, I think that Stanley Cavell has really identified a, a very important uh, source of inspiration for Thoreau, uh, which might not be obvious given the fact that Thoreau is not always complimentary towards Christianity, but his respect for uh, an inspiration by the Old Testament prophets is something that is really striking. I mean, this is probably, this is someone who probably memorized a lot of the Old Testament prophets that he read, including uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So, um, because these were the prophets who already were lamenting that the birds and bees are gone uh, and they will return no more. So, I mean, Stanley Cavell wasn't actually making an ecological argument. He was arguing that, in fact, we should not overlook this very important linguistic heritage for Thoreau that he writes the way he does because the Old Testament uh, was a very important template for him and it informs his syntax, his semantics, uh, the way he thinks uh, and the way he looks at the world. Um, and I think that the way that, that I find that especially helpful and sort of counterintuitive um, is that for Thoreau's ecological understanding, we might want to think about his, his reading of Darwin, because Thoreau certainly was a very uh, close um, admirer of, of Darwin. He was among the first in this country, you know, really to respond to, to the origin species and, and really to um, take those ideas very, very seriously. But one thing that he did not actually uh, on one point, he did not actually agree with Darwin, uh, which is about the benefits of extinction. Um, Darwin accepts extinction as a natural process, is a way to make sure that there's no not overcrowding on this planet, and extinction is what enables uh, 
either an organism or some part of an organism uh, that isn't working very well to be replaced by a more effective substitute. So extinction it doesn't have to be a whole species. It can just be one particular subspecies or even the extinction of a part. Um, so, you know, Darwin actually uh, should be understood in that light as well. But for Thoreau, extinction in any manner, on any level, is something to be mourned. Uh, that even though there would be a new substitute, it doesn't really take the place of what has been, you know, cast aside. So that's a sensibility that is much closer to the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, whose whose mode of operation is really lamentation. Um, Darwin is not into lamentation. He wants to celebrate the plenity of the planet and the fact that there are all these marvelous creatures uh, coming into being from a simple beginning. Um, that's Darwin. Thoreau's mode of operation is lamenting the things that don't get to survive, things that are in danger of not surviving. You wonder in this essay, Vanishing Sounds, Thoreau and the Sixth Extinction, where Thoreau got the idea that vital parts of the world were gone and never to be recovered, uh, that some losses could not, should not be folded into a story of progress, of creation through destruction. And your answer draws on something that Thoreau wrote about Native Americans. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Uh, so Thoreau basically is, is of two minds about Native Americans. Um, I think that it's fair to say that, you know, that quite often he is dismissive of them, you know, so when he would see a kind of mournful looking Native American, he would say that, you know, this looks like someone who is crying over his uh, spilled milk. And there's just a sense that there is something inevitable about the decline, that the kind of the fate is, is carved in in stone, um, in, in the stone of evolution or, or the, the onward march of human civilization, that we are moving in one direction and they're the ones who are not able to keep up. So, you know, the definitely, uh, I mean, this is a very common um, 19th century argument that, you know, it's not because of anything that is done to them. Uh, it is because they cannot keep up with the march of civilization. So there's certainly enough of that in Thoreau. But I think that there are also moments of intense identification with Native Americans. And I was just reading, I mean, this is a passage that I didn't talk about in the essay, but I was just reading, back, uh, going back um, to the beginning of Walden, and he, at one point, he talks about a Native American uh, who's seeing that his neighbor, a rich lawyer, would just weave arguments, you know, and own this big house and, you know, and everything. And, and so he thought that, okay, I'm going to weave baskets and try to sell them, and then I would be financially well off as well. And and Thoreau said that he did not bother to weave his basket in such a way that someone would actually buy those baskets. And so, you know, the, the way that that seems to be working out up to that point um, is, is that, okay, once again, you know, here's somebody uh, who can't really keep up with the times, you know, he's just hopelessly outdated. But but then the next thing he says is that I too have woven arguments of a certain kind and not bother to make it worth the while for someone to buy them. Um, this this kind of completely reversing of the sympathy. Um, it is not that the Indian is so that the Native American is so benighted that he cannot. Um, do what the market demands, but that not being able to fathom the demands of the market itself speaks to a kind of integrity on the part of the native Amer of of this particular basket weaver, and that's the kind of basket weaver that Thoreau is himself uh, weaving his basket of arguments and baskets of prose and verbs and nouns and so on. Um, those moments, you know, they're scattered all over the place in Walden. And it usually comes in a kind of a two-step process. You know, 
um, it goes up to a point where uh, there's a kind of a near condemnation or near dismissal uh, of Native Americans. And then there will be a kind of unexpected turn. And it seems to be a complete reversal, uh, a reverse flow of, empath- of sympathy or empathy and a different kind of argument emerging. So, you know, turning, turning the market into a kind of rational place of um, adjudication, um, into a place of adjudication that is, in fact, demeaning to those who, who are so adjudicated. That's the voice of Wai Chi Dimmock. That's W-A-I-C-H-E-E-D-I-M-O-C-K, the William Lampson Professor of English and American Studies at Yale University. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Yeah, and, and Thoreau's interest in Native Americans is uh, manifested in another work that he wrote called The Maine Woods, where he's listening to a group of people of the Abenaki tribe. What comes out in that passage? So what Thoreau writes is it was a purely wild and primitive American sound, as much as the barking of a chickadee, and I could not understand a word of it. Um, It suddenly speaks to the incapacity of people who don't speak a native language. I mean, you know, usually that's not considered to be a deficit or a liability, but in paying tribute to the ancientness of the Abenaki sound and the way that it is really the natural sound. I mean, it is as natural to that environment as the sound of the chickadee um, in paying tribute to the organic relation between the native language and that particular habitat, Thoreau is in fact emphasizing the extent to which he really doesn't belong. He doesn't understand the language. He never will understand the language, although Thoreau is really a a very hardworking and and very um, talented linguist who tried to learn many, many languages. Um, But he would never understand that Abenaki language as it was being spoken on the spot. So he's suddenly branding himself as an outsider, you know, known by his ignorance of the native language and someone who really has no business to be there. Um, It's so rare ever to see that reverse perspective being squarely put in the foreground. Usually, you know, it's the fact that, you know, the Native, the, the Native Americans not being able to speak English well or understand it. Uh, usually that's the focus of attention. Here, the focus of attention is Thoreau's inability to understand the Native language. Um, you know, I, I can't really think of many, I mean, in fact, I can't think of any, any other passage uh, in all of American literature that, that speaks to that reverse perspective. Um, and maybe it really takes somebody who's a very, very serious linguist, you know, who can who knew Greek and Latin well, I mean, much more fluently than his mentor, Emerson, for instance. Uh, it, really, it, it really takes a linguist, a dedicated linguist, to understand what it is never able to speak a language, uh, what that signifies. And the full weight of that significance is is hitting Thoreau at that moment. So I mean, I just found that so so incredibly unexpected, and I think that it, it explains a lot of things. That uh, when Thoreau was invited by the Association for the Advancement of Science uh, to become a member uh, and to name, you know, the particular science that he uh, is interested in, um, that he would say that, you know, it's the artifacts and languages of the indigenous populations before Columbus arrived in the New World. Uh, Pre-Columbian languages and artifacts and cultures, that's his specialty. And the the fact that probably no living person now would think of Thoreau in that light uh, suggests that, in fact, you know, there's quite a distance between Thoreau and us even today, I mean, you know, even though we, we think of ourselves as much more enlightened uh, in terms of uh, treating indigenous populations, uh, we haven't really gone very far 
you know, in, in, in one particular aspect, which is respect for language other than English. Thoreau, as you write, was interested in Native American languages, artifacts, creation myths, and animal fables. You end this essay in this book, Time Scales, by examining what has happened to the sounds and voices of Native Americans in this century, in the 21st century. What do you like to foreground about what they're doing and, and the sounds that they're making in the contemporary world? I think that, you know, there's no question that um, that Native Americans are super aware uh, and super dedicated to making sure that the languages will not go extinct. So, I mean, this is actually something that has become, um, I mean, I just want to start with the most recent development, uh, which, which is that, you know, what happens to Native languages during the pandemic. I mean, a lot of the, you know, among many tribes in, in the, the one of the great fears is that the elders who can speak the language that, that they are the ones who would be most affected uh, and that the loss of those elders would also mean the loss of those languages so I mean even for for tribe I mean, for a nation the charity nation uh, a well-to-do nation that has uh, very good public health facilities they go out of the way to put the elders at the head of the line for the vaccine, you know, before healthcare workers, before anyone else, the elders uh, would be the first to get the vaccine. Uh, so that's the latest development. But I think that this is not, in many ways, it's not a surprising development, because for much of the past 20 years, I would say, and, and longer than that, uh, Native communities have been actively trying to develop technologies, really, recording technologies, but also uh, remaking native grammars uh, to to make sure that the language uh, would be able to, to be passed on in some fashion. Um, so I just want to point to one, you know, especially emblematic uh, development, uh, which is at Sitting Bull College, which belongs to the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Uh, a lot of us know about the Standing Rock Sioux tribe mostly because of the protests against the pipeline, the Kohler Access Pipeline, and the, the way that they were able to uh, keep up that fight for two years uh, until finally the Trump administration gave the go-ahead uh, for it to be built. Uh, but they continue to be, uh, Native Americans have been um, consistently on the front lines, you know, it's both the Dakota uh, and also Keystone and also another pipeline called Line 3 in Minnesota. They've always been at the forefront of the fight. But the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe also has another thing that they can be proud of, which is that they got an NEH grant for language preservation. The grant would enable them to make recordings of the speech of the native elder language speakers. Um, and there's also a new development that I didn't get to talk about in that essay, uh, which is that they got help from a very unexpected source, which is a Czech linguist, a uh, Czech linguist by the name of Jan Olich, who grew up in Prague and who uh, who just came upon a Lakota language uh, grammar in the Prague Library and fell in love with the language. So he... He said that he really identified with the Lakotas, or, you know, that's another name to designate as Sioux, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Uh, that the, the, he really identified with the Lakota language speakers because the land was being occupied by hostile power. And if we think about, you know, the occupation by uh, Czechoslovakia, by a hostile power, we understand exactly where he's coming from. So uh, this Czech linguist, ended up going to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and working with the elders. And he decided to help them write a new grammar. There already had been a grammar that was uh, created by a Jesuit priest, but the elders were not very happy with that grammar because it homogenized 
a lot of sounds. You know, the phonetics was all wrong as far as they were concerned. So when this Czech linguist showed up, they were just overjoyed that there was some family, someone who could understand the subtleties of the of the Lakota uh, phonetics and and would be able to produce a grammar that would that would be able to capture all the the, the nuances uh, of the phonetics. Um, I I think it is it's really a fascinating development. The Stanley Rose Sioux tribe has been in the headlines for so many reasons, but getting help from a Czech linguist is another reason why you know they've been in the headlines. And I think that it really speaks to a kind of indigenous, non-indigenous network that is beginning to gain momentum. I mean, I think that Native Americans have always been very accepting of non-Native people, right? Beginning from, from the very beginning, uh, because there was so much attrition among the tribes, uh, they were just losing so many of the members uh, that they adopted a lot of Caucasian um, women, especially. A lot of women actually ended up joining the tribe and they were assimilated into the tribes. That's been something that's been going on since the 18th century. Citizenship, tribal citizenship, is not racial. It is based on a different kind of belonging. So even though they are not about to assimilate this particular Czech linguist into the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, even though they were not going to claim him as a member, nonetheless, they were quite happy and seemed really, um, you know, think that it would be the most natural thing in the world, you know, that the Czech linguist should come along and help them remake the grammar. Uh, pride is not an issue. Uh, racial pride is not an issue. Racial purity is also not an issue. Uh, and that's something that, you know, that that's an attitude that we can really all learn from. My guest is Y. Chi Dimmock. She teaches English and American Studies at Yale University. She's also a researcher at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. We are talking about her essay, Vanishing Sounds, Thoreau and the Sixth Extinction, appeared in the volume Timescales, Thinking Across Ecological Temporalities, edited by Bethany Wigan, Carolyn Fornoff, and Patricia Yunji Kim, and published by the University of Minnesota Press. Awaichi, your recent book, Weak Planet, Literature and Assisted Survival, was published by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, what is that book about? That book uh, was partly about my own experience. Uh, so it's, the subtitle is Literature and Assisted Survival. Um, and the subtext for that is an experience that I had of spending four weeks in rehab after being um, hit by a car when I was crossing the street and, and being dependent on a wheelchair. So, um, I mean, I'm recovered now, you know, not maybe not fully, but nonetheless, I don't need a wheelchair to get around. Uh, but when I was I was in a wheelchair, uh, I was just really struck by how how grateful I was to that wheelchair and the sense of mobility. Uh, it was a sense of almost undiminished mobility. Um, you know, I mean, I couldn't do everything, but I thought that this was such a wonderful mechanical device that would enable me, enable me to function in, in, in ways that I wanted to function. So the notion that accepting assistance either from other human beings or even from a non-human agent, such as a wheelchair, uh, that that was completely okay. It doesn't really, uh, you know, it speaks to our vulnerability and the fact that we can lose a lot of our functions, you know, without without being forewarned. Um, at the same time, anytime there's a loss of function, usually there's something that can help us regain that function in some manner. And that wheelchair was doing it for me. So I was, you know, even though I had been writing a book that was kind of close to, uh, there was there was the precursor to Weak Planet, uh, that experience really gave me a different orientation for the book. And so it's, it's really about uh, literature as a vehicle for assisted survival. And I ended up by talking uh, exactly about that uh, Czech linguist helping the Standing Rock Sioux tribe remake the grammar as that, you know, unexpected assistance uh, coming from an unexpected source and, and how uh, literature is really all about that. I mean, you know, that Thoreau can get help from Old Testament prophets, 
those prophets had no idea he was going to come along and benefit, you know, from from the idiom. But there he was, you know, he was the recipient of that particular form of assistance. Uh, so anytime we we we're inspired by by someone else, or anytime there's the continuing presence of somebody else's words in our own writing. Uh, that for me is an instance uh, of assisted survival. So it's really about uh, the interconnectedness of all forms of writing, all forms of speech, the fact that we are using words uh, that have been used by other people, and that the way they use those words would continue to live on, even if not in exactly the same way, but nonetheless they continue to, to live on in a way that we bring a new emphasis to those words. What are some of the books and narratives, and I think even artworks that you address in this book, Weak Planet? I had really I had a lot of fun uh, writing about Melville uh, and Moby Dick, and some of the artworks that I consider are the Moby Dick series uh, by the artist Frank Stella, who's who's definitely one of the most important artists of the twentieth and twenty first century. Uh, and had a really interesting relation to abstract art. I mean, he really made his name by creating abstract art that is just lines, white lines on a black background and saying that, you know, a painted canvas should look like a painted canvas. It shouldn't try to represent anything else because anything else would be an illusion that is unjustified. So, you know, he was really uh, very militant uh, in terms of how austere abstract art ought to be. But then, you know, he, he, he gradually uh, came to see that, you know, maybe there's really a limit to what abstraction can do for art. And so by the time he read Melville, he was, he was in the process of transitioning to a more hybrid form of art. And Moby Dick was really a great challenge because it definitely is not abstract. I mean, you know, there's a plot. I mean, it's a very tangible plot and an ending, you know, very dramatic, tangible ending. Um, so his, his Moby Dick series, which was over 100 paintings, um, they are kind of a marriage between abstract art and some kind of representational art. So, you know, for instance, there's a painting called Ahab's Leg, and, you know, yeah, it's... It shows one boot, you know, because Ahab has lost one of his legs, so there's only one boot, and and then there's this is kind of a streak of blood dripping around the boot, um, recalling uh, what happened to that other leg that was gnawed off by Moby Dick. Uh, so, but at the same time, you know, that detail is not is not really explained. It, you know, it's just there, and it's surrounded by many other. Um, figures, including a large lattice design, you know, like a window lattice, an abstract, almost uh, formulaic graphic design that's in the background, you know, so that's in the, at the center of the painting, uh, and then there's this uh, boot with the blood at the bottom, on the bottom left. Uh, the relation between that lattice design in the middle and and the boot is is completely unexplained. So we have to think about you know why it is that Stella would want to put those things together in his representation of Moby Dick. And it turns out that there is an emphasis in Moby Dick about the dignity of workmen, right? So in a very famous passage in Moby Dick, uh, Melville has 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 singled out the arm that wields the hammer as the arm that he wants to pay tribute to. The the, the suggestion that American democracy can be uh, really the beginning of a new kind of world order, although that is undermined by the fact that even though, yes, there are plenty of laborers on the Pequot, they all perish with Ahab. So there's a kind of a simultaneous tribute paying to the workmen, but also a kind of unavoidable and predestined end for those workmen in the wreck of the Pequot. So I think that what Stella is doing is both to acknowledge that, yes, the world order is going to be decided by the likes of Ahab. And there is that Ahab's signature right there. His boot is, is his signature. But at the same time, he's almost giving 
will be like a different ending in making the lattice design so much more uh, so much larger. I mean, just in terms of size, I mean, it's a much larger detail than the boot. Uh, it's central. There's no way you cannot see it. And that lattice design points to an artisan tradition uh, is what artisans have been using in China for hundreds of years. And Stella has come, come upon that design in a book, in an artisanal kind of handbook. So it is both acknowledging Melville's aspiration to write a praise song for American democracy based on American labor, uh, acknowledging that it didn't quite work out in Moby Dick, but at the same time holding on to that promise and saying that, you know, let's give it another, a second chance uh, to see if it might not actually work out in a different way. And Stella himself identifying with the artisan, as he always has done. I mean, you know, he sees himself as, as a printmaker, as, you know, somebody who works with his hands, uh, somebody who's really a printmaker as an artisan. Uh, he's, yes, he's an artist dedicated to high and abstraction, but he's also a printmaker working with his hands. And that particular Moby Dick series is reflecting both sides of Stella and also kind of reclaiming or revivifying the kind of inspiration uh, in Melville that didn't quite come to fruition in Moby Dick. Y. Chi Dimmock, William Lampson Professor of English and American Studies at Yale University, researcher at the Harvard University Center for the Environment, author of books like Weak Planet and Through Other Continents and Shades of the Planet, American Literature as World Literature. We've spent most of the hour talking about her essay, Vanishing Sounds, Thoreau and the Sixth Extinction. Chi, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you, CS. It's been so great talking to you. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.